We've progressed so nicely in our advancement of knowledge and information that these experts are generating fabulous dots, fabulous dots. The concern is there's now a shortage of people connecting those dots to find integrated value across those insights. That's another reason why I think the generalist logic is important. That's Vikram Manshiramani, author of Think for Yourself, Restoring Common Sense in an Age of Experts and Artificial Intelligence. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. We live in a world of overwhelming options, and whether you're an entrepreneur, an executive, or just someone who wants to make the most out of your time and money, committing to just one thing can feel impossible. That's called FOMO, and it's short for fear of missing out. How do I know? Because I coined the term. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I ask entrepreneurial thinkers how they make personal and professional decisions in a world of overwhelming choice. FOMO. FOMO. Leonardo da Vinci is the archetype of the Renaissance man. He was a scientist, artist, and inventor who dabbled in drawing, painting, sculpture, architecture, science, music, mathematics, engineering, literature, anatomy, geology, astronomy, botany, paleontology, and cartography. He's probably one of the most well-rounded people who ever walked the earth, but he's not my favorite well-rounded person. That distinction goes to Helen Keller, who was an author, women's suffrage activist, anti-militarism activist, advocate for the poor and voiceless, and teacher who traveled all over the world. She was also the first deafblind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree. Nice job, Helen. What I love about both of these icons is that they're generalists. But increasingly, we are living in an age of specialists. Our education system, careers, and even our news feeds are all increasingly deep and specialized rather than broad and diverse. And this has direct implications on how we make decisions. If you're overwhelmed with data and choice, it can be tempting to outsource your decision-making to specialists and algorithms rather than step back and rely on your common sense to navigate our complex and data-driven world. My guest today is going to tell us why thinking like a generalist is indispensable, and he's going to show us how you can make better decisions by thinking for yourself. That means you've got to avoid outsourcing your thinking to specialists, experts, and algorithms and take back control. Vikram Mansharmani is himself impeccably well-rounded. He's an author, investor, and professor who has taught at Harvard and Yale and has three degrees from MIT, including a PhD. As you're about to see, this guy's very sharp. And then stick around for the faux moment of the show where I'll be joined by Jeff Wall, the author of the new book, The End of Jobs, and the creator of the Future of Work Prize, which will award a cool $10 million to one futurist in the year 2040. And now onto the interview. To set the stage for our discussion, I started by asking Vikram about why it's so tempting to outsource our decision-making. We have so much information coming at us, so much choice. We have tons of data. And as we get all of these sources of information and choices presented to us, we desperately want to choose the perfect uh, or we want to make the perfect decision. We want to make the ideal choice. We want to maximize our uh selections for the benefit of what we're trying to achieve. Now, the problem is it's really difficult to do that. You know, how am I supposed to make the perfect medical decision in the domain of my heart health? I'm not a heart expert. There's a lot of data and there's a cardiologist and there may be uh, someone even more specific than that. And so what we do is we break up this complex world with lots of information into little silos. And within each of those silos, we find people who are expert, people who know that domain really well. They're deep and narrow. And so we can find perhaps the exact advisor anytime for any choice anywhere in life who will optimize for us. Someone who will give us that perfect decision so that we don't need to be fearful of having missed on something that could have been better. 
And so as a result, we've started outsourcing some of our thinking around choice um, and because we expect there to be an optimal decision. Of course, with this many choices out there, there must be one. Are you telling me then that I should not, you know, say, God forbid, you know, I have tightness in my chest and I go to the doctor. I should say, you know, doc, you might think it's a heart attack, but I prefer to think of it as indigestion. I guess, what, how, do you, how, do, how do I sort of think about that? Sure. So the, so the first thing I want to say and make very clear here is this is not a story about bashing experts. This is a story that uh, is really about keeping experts on tap but not on top. So I'm by no means suggesting that expert input is useless. It is absolutely critical. They know more about those domains. We should, in fact, take their inputs. What I'm getting at is the blind reliance, the mindless outsourcing of our thinking. I have no problem with you trusting your doctor. In fact, I'd encourage you to. Uh, But what I really want you to do is to do so mindfully to make that choice. Okay, so it reminds me of something. This when I when I read the beginning of the book, it made me think of something that happened to me, which was that early in March, I was told by the Surgeon General, Dr. Jerome Adams, Dr. Jerome Adams, if you're listening, I'm talking to you right now, don't wear a face mask because you know, we don't need face masks. And I remember thinking, well, okay, he said not to, and this is the, the this is the the Surgeon General, so I'm not going to. In the back of my head, I thought, well, if you know, if everybody in the hospital is wearing a face mask, probably I should be too, but I've been told not to. And so is that what you're getting at? It's sort of like, yes, there's an expert telling me something, but if I just used a little common sense and thought for myself, I might do something differently. That's right. And part of being able to do that is actually having the capacity to look at different perspectives and not being too siloed in your knowledge. And you wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review way back in 2012 called All Hail the Generalist. I remember reading that in which you asserted that our love affair with deep experience had gone too far. And apparently it was a very controversial perspective. So why do you think that we should be generalists? The controversy that emerged from that article was so many people had sort of develop their career paths with a belief that specialization and deep expertise was the path to climbing to the top. And that is their, uh, that was sort of their, their mode of operation. And that was somewhat uh, disturbing to have someone say, wait, hold on a sec. Maybe there's other ways. Maybe this mantra, this religion you've come to expect and believe in, which is deep expertise is the path forward, uh, may not be 100% valid in all situations. And that was really it, as I was calling into question the balancing act between those two. Um, I think it's really important, specifically in dynamic and complex environments, to pay attention to the context. Now, those who have deep and narrow focus tend to pay less attention to the broad context in which they're operating. That's where the issue arises. And so when you're facing complex, uncertain environments, I think it's really important to understand the boundaries of the silos in which these experts operate. And so in order to manage an expert, you have to have an appreciation for a domain broader than that expert. Uh, So I think there's a little bit of that. Further, we've progressed so nicely in our advancement of knowledge and information that these experts are generating fabulous dots fabulous dots. The concern is there's now a shortage of people connecting those dots to find integrated value across those insights. That's another reason why I think the generalist logic is important. 
What I find interesting is it used to be that we value generalists. In fact, there was an expression, the Renaissance man or Renaissance woman, of course. And I remember as a kid being told to be well-rounded because that's how you get into college. So how did we move away from a world where we valued well-rounded people to one in which we value specialization? Part of that explanation, I think, comes from the university structures, right? Professors specialize, they get narrow, they get deep. They then turn around and publish in narrow and uh, deep uh, ways. They like to teach about what they research. Students like to get degrees uh, from these elite institutions that are research-oriented that tends to propagate this desire to focus. So I think that's part of it. But the other thing that happened, uh, if we stick with the college domain for a moment, Patrick, the the well-roundedness, which was a real value. I mean, same thing with me, with you, those of our vintage probably learned to respect well-rounded individuals and the class was filled with that. But that's not the case anymore, right? So what changed? Colleges really became very motivated to diversify their classes in terms of skills and performance capabilities and athletic prowess and, um, you know, musical and theatrical and debating. And so diversity in all these forms became critical. I think this quest for diversity led to some, some, some interesting distinctions. One, diversity in all forms started becoming really highly valued, and I'm not saying that they're not, but one way was, okay, we really want to get elite athletes. We really want to get elite pianists. We want elite uh, whatever it is, debaters. Um, and so what you found was that intent, which was well-founded and sort of good reasoning, led towards the pursuit of very spiky applicants. I think that's the phrase that's been used by some of my undergrad students is you have to be really spiky now. You should be round, but you got to be really, really great in one thing or two things. But being just round is not spiky enough to get you noticed. And so then these kids graduate from college. And I'm curious, in the long run, does being a specialist pay better? Where should we go with that? Being a specialist pays you more in the short run but not necessarily in the long run. And being a generalist allows you to explore and sort of investigate different options in the shorter run, but that comes at a cost, right? I mean, you don't get the uh, huge value contribution to an enterprise when you're doing a little bit of everything. Um, and even if you are contributing a lot, it's not clear it's attributed to you, uh, your contributions, because you're doing a lot of little things and how much of it was really your contribution. So I think it's actually the opposite, which is generalists have the potential to get paid a lot more in the long run, but specialists have the potential to get paid a lot more in the short run. Uh, and so what you want to do is try to combine those two, uh, if possible, and have a little bit of both in your world. Uh, and part of this actually, you asked sort of why the specialization mantra took hold. Part of it also has to do with what happened in finance, right? Uh, what happened in consulting, what happened in a lot of these entry-level careers for a lot of the uh, uh, college graduates. We found that it was, well, you know, it's okay. You can go into investment banking. Well, you know what? It's not really investment banking. You really want to be an energy investment banker. Well, you know what? The energy investment banking group is pretty large. What you really want to be is an energy investment banker focused on M&A. Well, actually, that's not really good enough. You really want to be an energy-focused investment banker focused on M&A and cross-border transactions, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And this happened in virtually all professions. Yeah, and you know what happens? 
the oil price falls and you're this specialist and all of a sudden there's no business there and you're not diversified. And so that, you know, I think about that in the context of this moment. We're going through, you know, how many financial crises have we had in the past 20 years? Too many. I mean, three at least in the US. And so people, I think about friends of mine who stuck with that one thing and then, you know, and it was very lucrative. It was like, I trade this derivative at this big bank. And then a couple years later, it's like they are dinosaurs. So for somebody who's listening right now, who is a specialist and says, makes sense to me, I want to diversify. I want to be more of a generalist. How can they make that pivot? So I think it's a great pivot to make, and I think it's actually not that difficult to make. It begins incrementally, right? So if let's say you are that energy specialist, well, you might start reading about healthcare. Why not? Right? I mean, there's no harm in doing so. It's obviously a very pertinent issue today. Uh, you can read about public health. You can read about healthcare systems, study the industry, understand the economic model, and maybe you can diversify your expertise towards healthcare. But don't stop there. You know, diversify across all industries, see what's interesting. And one way I really do think people can do this uh, with with not too much effort, Patrick, is first of all, the way people consume news is usually via filters and they go topically from this link to that link, etc. I'm actually recommending people, you read physical newspapers and magazines and get force yourself to flip through each page. The mere act of doing so will expose you to domains outside of your narrow focus. Almost any day that will do that. And so by doing that consistently, I think you develop breath naturally. The other thing you can do is meet some new people because what I notice is, and I, and I, you may not see people for a long time that you used to work with, and then you go hang out with them and you realize they kind of talk about the same thing all of the time. It's sort of like they're talking about interest rates again, and yep. it's important to recognize that interest rates are great, but there are other things going on in the world. And if you don't expose yourself to people who aren't like you, you're not learning about what the cutting edge is. And so whether that means going and hanging out with an entrepreneur in your field who's doing something disruptive or going to uh, an event where there's speakers from a completely different industry, just making sure that not only do you become one track minded, but that you're exposing yourself to new types of thinking, make sure that you're not going to become one of these people who becomes irrelevant, which is, I think, what what the real risk is here when you when you're when you're too specialized is irrelevance. Yeah, I think you're right, Patrick. And I think actually, if we want to take it into a macro interpretation of your same thoughts, I mean, this whole mantra for skills-based training, which has gotten a lot of political uh, support, I have to stop and ask the question, which is, okay, that's fine, but be prepared to retrain them when that skill is no longer useful, right? And so ultimately, what we want to do is people who we want to develop a, a labor force that's flexible, that can adapt. And when you get narrow and specialized, I think it makes you less adaptable. Tudo bem, meus queridos fomo sapiens. Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. Now, what about running a business? So how do you find and how do you manage people who can think like this? Yeah, it's hard. So I think the first thing is finding people who think like this uh, because of the world we're in, they tend to have come in with little narrow developed expertise. It's very easy because they have this belief system, at least most people have this belief system that an expertise is good, to take them out of their expertise and throw them into another domain and allow them to develop expertise there. Uh, and you know, so you can sort of build it out like, okay, you get expertise here, you get expertise here, expertise here, et cetera. And in the process, almost unbeknownst to them, they become a generalist, <laughs> right? So this was part of the programs, the management training programs that used to domineer large corporations in America were really generalist programs where they rotated people, right? I mean, GE was famous for their management leadership program. Uh, obviously, they've stumbled since then. Um, but by the way, they stumbled after they ended this program. I don't know if there's a correlation there, but they, <laughs> they did used to have, you did really well in aircraft engines. You know what? You did aircraft engines and the operations. Now we're going to take you to marketing and financial services. And it's discombobulating. But then you learn a different skill set. And at the end, you become a fabulous general leader, which is why GE was the breeding ground for some of America's best corporate executives. You gave us one way to become better generalists, which is reading and making yourself just consume news that maybe outside of what you were going to read that day. It's like, I'm not just going to read about science. I might stumble across an article about, I don't know, furniture design and I'll, and I'll learn something new today. So how about, um, what are some other ways to do this? One of the other ways that I think can help you develop a broad perspective is to, and it's going to sound sort of offbeat, but I do think it's important is to read fiction, to read fiction and watch movies. So I teach this engineering class at Harvard, an engineering syst systems thinking class at the engineering school. And I have my students read novels. Uh, and they're like, wait, what? Hold on a second. That's not true. Why, why should I read something that's not true? And I guess this is very difficult for an engineering minded person to think that we should read things that are fake or made up. Uh, but it's really those things that can force the boundaries of our imagination and creativity. That process, I think, also spurs curiosity, which naturally supports this quest to become more general in your knowledge. Um, so I'll give you an example. One of the books that we've used is uh, Never Let Me Go. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro wrote it. He's a Nobel Prize winning uh, author. Um, it's a book that's very jarring. I won't spoil it for those that haven't uh, read it. Um, but it's very jarring. It makes you think in ways you hadn't thought about inequality, about technology, and a whole bunch of other domains. Um, so I think there's some value in just reading fiction, if that makes sense. So Vikram, this makes sense, but I imagine a lot of us fall into the trap of 
outsourcing to others and not thinking for ourselves without really thinking about it. It just becomes a habit. So how can you spot that so that you can address it? I would always suggest asking yourself whether you did the opposite of the advice you were given, what you would think, right? So just literally do the opposite. Uh, and I say, hey, what if I didn't do this? My doctor said, take, you know, a statin. Well, what if I didn't? What's going to happen? So one of the things I really recommend is that you play devil's advocate with your own positions and the positions you're advised to take. So if your doctor recommends you do one thing, ask, what if I do the opposite? Or what if I do nothing? That helps us understand where we're passively thinking versus actively thinking. And if we have some disagreement on the table, well, then we're making a choice that's by definition active, right? If there's only one option, it's not a choice. It's interesting too, because with authority figures like a doctor, I can't imagine that people do ask them that very often. And so if you, if you do push back or you ask this question, you know, what if I do the opposite? I imagine you'll actually sort of get their attention and maybe even force them to think differently. That's right. Further and relating to that, you may actually get an understanding as to why they think the way they do. And that will force an engagement on your end to question whether you believe the basis upon which they have. So if you don't agree with their underlying assumptions, well, for sure you shouldn't take their uh, recommended course of action. Um, but if we don't ask the question, we may not understand why they think the way they do or when those conditions that are valid are not valid to you and the advice would not make sense. Why is being a devil's advocate so productive? It forces disagreement where there may not have been any. And in fact, it reminds me of this quote from uh, Alfred Sloan, the, uh, the legendary chairman of General Motors, where he came into a room and he noticed that all of his executives were in full agreement with the decision they were about to make. And I think he stopped and he said, I, th I think I've got the quote here. Let me read it. It says, gentlemen, I take it we are all in com complete agreement on the decision here. After observing everyone's head, he then continued the quote and he said, then I propose we postpone further discussion on this matter to give ourselves time to develop disagreement and perhaps gain some understanding of what the decision is all about. That captures the essence of why I think it's important to get disagreement. It's only when we see the pros and cons and we can articulate a very viable argument on both sides that we will really be able to make a good decision in an uncertain environment. Yeah, and that's why it's so critical to have diverse teams. And we talked about this a bunch on the show and had the, the CEO of Zola come on, Shan Ma, who, who talked about the fact that by design, her team is very diverse because she doesn't want groupthink. And I think poor Mr. Sloan started off bad because he said, gentlemen, so he doesn't have any women on his team. So that's a place to start. <laughs> now, Vikram, I'm going to be very honest with you. I do outsource a lot of decisions in my life, what I call low stakes and no stakes decisions, things about where to go to dinner, what to watch on Netflix, stuff like that. And I feel pretty good about that. So I want I want to get your I want to get your blessing. Am I am I am I doing the right thing or should I rethink my approach to life? No, Patrick, I agree. Look, it's the cost of constantly engaging to think through every decision trivial uh, that you may encounter in your day-to-day -day life is just overwhelming and I would never recommend that you uh, try to think through every single one of those decisions. We have to outsource, right? 
the question is just even as the fact that you are aware you're doing it is mission accomplished in my eyes, right? You're aware you're not thinking about it and you're okay with that. That's fine. It's when you're not even aware you're not aware, <laughs> right? We're getting a very meta here, but you know what I'm getting at. I do. And I am glad we agree. The book is called Think for Yourself. You can find more on that and on Vikram's work at mansharamani.com. Thanks for being here, Vikram. Thanks, Patrick. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to NetSuite.com slash FOMO. That's NetSuite.com slash FOMO. NetSuite.com slash FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show. And today I'm joined by Jeff Wall, the author of The End of Jobs, which looks at the future of work and tells us how to best prepare for the labor market of the future. Jeff is also the co-founder of Work Market, an online platform and marketplace for businesses to manage freelancers, contractors, and consultants. The company raised over $60 million before being acquired by ADP in 2018. To start our conversation, I asked Jeff what kinds of jobs are in danger of disappearing and which will endure in the age of automation. So some things that will clearly disappear are things that have high components of repetitive, high-volume tasks, data entry, transportation, retail, things like that. Those jobs are in very high danger of being displaced in the near term. Jobs that are not at a high risk of being displaced are jobs with high levels of creativity, high levels of human interaction, HR jobs, design jobs, strategy jobs, sales jobs. And, you know, obviously anything to do with robotics, data, and software programming. And obviously, podcast hosts. <laughs> Clearly podcast hosts. Now, now um, as we think about that then, as, you know, people who are listening to this are business people, entrepreneurs, as we think about how to prepare ourselves for that eventuality, first of all, what does the transition look like? And second of all, how can we best be prepared? Well, it's important to note that while 10 to 15% of jobs are going to be displaced, we will create jobs in other areas. And the big challenge is the challenge of retraining. We may lose up to 30 million jobs in the United States of America over a 20-year period, but we will create that number of jobs, if not more. And we need to put in place the mechanisms to ensure that companies have the right workers and we don't exacerbate the skills gap and that we don't leave too many workers behind. Because I will tell you, Patrick, we did a very poor job of this as automation first hit the manufacturing sector. We peaked at 20 million jobs in the United States in 1980, and we dropped to about 12 million jobs, not due to trade policy, not due to environmental policy, but because robots were brought onto the factory floor. And we did not serve those workers well in providing the retraining necessary for the high-skill, high-technology, high-growth jobs that were available to them. How do you think the current situation with the pandemic affects this future that you're talking about? 
The most tangible way that the pandemic is accelerating existing trends is remote work. Prior to the pandemic, 3% of the workforce worked remotely. At the peak of the pandemic, about 40% of the workforce has worked remotely because companies had to put in place the policies, the procedures, and the infrastructure to ensure that their workers could continue to be productive. And in doing that, they saw what every study had told us. Remote workers were more productive, they were more engaged, they were happier. And so that genie is now out of the bottle. And when you think about the work world of work post-pandemic, that 3% will probably become about 8%. That is a massive change to the world of work that has been accelerated because of COVID. It's funny because it's still a small number, obviously. I mean, 8% is something, right? But I mean, it's more than double than it was. But one of the things we talk a lot about on this show with different guests that I've had, like Dan Chabelle, um, who wrote a book, Back to Human, is about how working from home can be lonely. And so you've been working from home. We've all been working from home. What have you learned about working from home in, in, the, in, in, the, in the last couple of months? Well, to your point, 8% does seem low. But let's keep in mind, when you move from 3% to 8%, two important things. One, labor statistics do not move that quickly. When you look at, his, at history, labor statistics move pretty methodically, pretty slowly. So this is a massive change. Point one, point two, a 3% to an 8% jump, that is 8 million more workers in the United States that will work remote. Also keep in mind that 42% is the max capacity of the U.S. workforce to work remote. Clearly, people in retail and hospitality, restaurants and manufacturing and a host of other jobs can't work remote. 42% is the upward limit. And so you are talking about 20% of the workers that could work remote will be. And the reason that it's not higher is that people are social animals. They do like to go to the office. And so a lot of people, while they could and will now be offered the opportunity to work remote, will still look to go into the office and to spend time with their friends and colleagues. Now, you have created something called the Future of Work Prize, which is inspired by the X Prize. And you are going to give away $10 million on January 1st, 2040. So I think all of us are wondering, how can we enter to win the prize? Well, unfortunately, the prize was done in conjunction with the book. So the book was just released, The End of Jobs. In the book, I had the opportunity to interview hundreds of the business leaders, the men and women that are shaping the future of work. And I asked a number of them, I asked about 40, to write their vision of what the world looked like for 20, in 2040 as a part of this Future of Work prize. And then I was able to select with my publisher the top 20. Uh, and these are different essays from these amazing, amazing leaders, heads of HR, heads of companies, heads of unions, heads of staffing firms, as they think about what the world of work looks like in 2040. Jeff, you truly put your money where your mouth is, but I have to admit, uh, I really wish you had asked me to write one of those essays. All right. Uh, Jeff Wald, author of The End of Jobs. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. FOMO. And that's the end of another episode. If you have an idea, a story, or a question, you can find me on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, and at www.patrickmcginnis.com, where you can also take the official FOMO Sapiens diagnostic and find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents Network. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrom. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it at Spotify and at iTunes. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com.